It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 211 for September 26th, 2010. Recorded September 24th. I really like public Wi-Fi locations. My city provides Wi-Fi on the street, Main Street, that is, not my street, and Main Street is really High Street. It's free. I can also connect from the library or the community center. It's not citywide Wi-Fi, but it's easily available nonetheless. The city of Worthington says that its outdoor wireless network is, and I quote, free to users and is accessible along High Street between South Street and North Street and in both Worthington Library locations. The Wi-Fi network is provided by HarborLink Network, they say, and is supported through advertising and sponsorships. Well, as much as I like public Wi-Fi, I also understand that it's an outstanding way to give your email address, login name, and password to unsavory characters who might be lurking nearby. But there's an easy solution to the problem. Worthington warns me that the system is public, free, and not secure. If your email is not encrypted, sending a note about a dinner meeting is fine. Sending your accountant your social security number is not. Also, do not enter credit cards or other personal account information on websites. Your screen can be visible to passers-by. Surf sites appropriate for all eyes. Update your spyware and antivirus software. Just like with any connection, you can catch nasty bugs coming off the Internet. If you need additional security, please obtain independently. Well, that's kind of scary. Access points are located in both the Old Worthington Library and Northwest Library, as well as the Griswold Senior Center, and along the mast arms of the city's traffic signals. Access points create a wireless local area network, and this is one of the advantages of living in an urban area where the government understands the importance of the Internet. But to avoid giving away your identity, you need to create a virtual private network, or VPN. And if that sounds complex and confusing, it is. Then again, it's not. If you use an application such as Hotspot Shield, your connections, both wired and wireless, will be secure, and you'll hardly notice any change, except for the advertisements. Hotspot Shield works for both Windows and Mac operating systems, including Windows 7 and Apple's OS X Snow Leopard. The problem with basic Wi-Fi is that everything is sent in the clear. Anybody who's nearby who has even the most basic understanding of network topology will be able to see everything your computer sends and receives. A program such as Hotspot Shield will protect you by ensuring that all transactions are secured through secure HTTP. Anchor Free's Hotspot Shield creates that VPN between your computer and Anchor Free's Internet Gateway. Because all communications are then encrypted, nobody can view the data sent from or received by your PC. The application runs on PCs with Windows starting with Windows 2000, and including Windows XP, Vista, and Windows 7, and, as I mentioned, on Macs, with any version of OS X, starting with 10.4 and above. Hotspot Shield is adware, which means that by accepting the application for free, you give the company permission to bombard you with ads. 
Their agreement states, and I quote, Section 9.1, Advertisements. Anchor Free may deliver third-party advertisements within the content of any web page accessed. Advertisements may be injected into the top of the page, inserted directly into the page content, or even displayed to overlay the page. A competing product, Hotspot VPN, doesn't have ads, but you'll pay $90 per year for it. If you're an infrequent user of Hotspots, you'll probably be able to bear the advertisements. The most annoying feature is that some of the ads have music and sound, and you'll want to opt out of anything you're offered during the installation process because by default the program will offer you a browser toolbar and will become your default search provider and homepage. I also turned off the Instant Hotspot Shield Privacy and Security Alerts and an option to fix page not found errors. Although I wanted to test another free application for this report, IPIG Wi-Fi Hotspot VPN Security, the provider's website was unable to respond when I tried to create an account, and according to the developers, commercial support for IPIG is no longer available to new users or customers. If you're a developer, though, you might be interested to know that you can get the source code, and there's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. So if you're a programmer just itching to work on interesting open-source projects, this could be one of them. So how does Hotspot Shield work? Well, after downloading the installer, the first choice is language. English is the default. Then you'll have the section with the agreement that says you understand ads will be served on the web pages you view. It's a very long agreement. Another panel provides free software offers. Now, whenever you see this kind of offer during an installation, consider it a strong warning to sit up, read everything, and pay very close attention to what's happening, because you probably won't like what you're reading, and you'll want to stop whatever's being installed in addition to your primary application. For example, a toolbar will be selected by default. This is not a necessary component. If you install it, the toolbar will probably get in your way. So deselect it even though it's shown as recommended. Who's recommending it, after all? The people with a fiscal interest in it, of course. Four other options will be selected by default to deselect at least the first and second of those options. Following the installation, Hotspot Shield creates a secure connection and starts encrypting all traffic to or from your computer. Next, Hotspot Shield will open your browser and start playing a commercial. In my case, it was loud and annoying, and it was an advertisement for a laundry product. You can turn it off immediately. If you've never used a Wi-Fi connection, you may wonder how all this stuff works. If you have a Windows 7 computer, or a computer with any of several versions of Linux, or a Mac with just about any version of OS X, at least the ones released in the past five or six years, it is extremely easy. Earlier versions of Windows can be more challenging. The process is about the same for all operating systems, but various components may have different names. Start by making sure that the Wi-Fi is turned on, and then open the Network Connection Wizard. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the Worthington Wi-Fi as it appears at the main library. The computer sees the network and asks if I want to connect to it. Next, you may see a message that tells you to open a browser, and you'll need to do this even if all you plan to do is use an email program that is not browser-based. Open the browser, try to navigate to any website, which one doesn't matter. This will cause the Wi-Fi system to display an agreement page. This is where you agree you understand the system is open and that anyone in the vicinity with a packet sniffer can see everything you're doing. 
Once you've accepted the agreement, many Wi-Fi systems will then display the host's page. That's the case with the Worthington Public Library. At an airport, you might see a current list of arrivals and departures. That's the case at Port Columbus, because the Wi-Fi is provided free by the airport. Well, that's it. You're now connected, but there is one more step. Now's the time to fire up Hotspot Shield. An advertising page will open, but you can close it immediately if you wish. You'll see the same page later when you disconnect from Hotspot Shield. But overall, it's quick and easy. So the bottom line, yes, it's adware, true. But Hotspot Shield is still a pretty darn good deal. If I needed to use Wi-Fi hotspots frequently, Hotspot Shield's advertisements might be just a little too in my face. In that case, $90 a year for a paid service would probably be money well spent. But for occasional use, I don't think you can beat this service. Initially, I had given Hotspot Shield a 3-cat rating, which is solid. But after using it in the wild, I decided it really deserves a 4-cat rating. Hotspot Shield makes protection so easy that nobody should be without it. For more information, you can visit the Hotspot Shield website, and you will find a link to that from, as you might expect, the TechBiter Worldwide website. Wandering around the Internet continues to amuse me and sometimes amaze me. It's like wandering through a library or a bookstore, just picking up a book at random, reading a bit of it. When you depend on serendipity, there's no telling what you'll find. You might find some of the websites I've wandered to to be useful or silly or fun or who knows. I found oldcomputers.net, old computer ads, pictures of computers. And has it really been nearly 30 years since I purchased that Atari 800? There are facts there. The Apple Lisa in 1983 was the first successful computer with a graphical user interface and a mouse. The cost? $10,000. If you have any interest in computers, you'll have trouble leaving this website. It is absolutely fascinating. How about OTR.net? The OTR Network Library is a free resource for old-time radio, OTR. You'll find more than 12,000 OTR shows available for instant listening. Now, you will need to have the real player installed, and you'll need to have a compatible browser. Abbott and Costello, the Bickersons, Jack Benny, the Lone Ranger, Jack Armstrong, and many more available for immediate listening and free. But I mentioned that this site requires real media, which will try to take over your computer. If you don't like real media, I'm sorry, you just have to skip this site. I found some fascinating pictures on the Denver Post webpage. Maybe you thought color photography wasn't available in the 1930s, but it was. And some of the outstanding images from the 30s era were captured on color slide film. The Denver Post provides a series of 70 images from the late 30s and early 40s. Many of the images show government-sponsored building projects. Truly, this is an interesting place to go. The Sacramento Bee has some photos from NASA. NASA makes a lot of images available. The NASA site itself is well worth the time you spend there, but the link I provide reviews one specific mission. Have you seen the movie Inception? Dreams are the major plot device for this film, and perhaps not too surprisingly, there are websites that discuss dreams. LucidDreamGuru.com is one of those sites. Lucid dreaming is a particularly interesting concept, and you may already be familiar with it. A lucid dream is a dream in which the person who is sleeping becomes conscious and aware that they're dreaming. Once this consciousness is achieved, the dreamer is able to engage and even manipulate the dream as they desire. 
Since the dream is a recreation from the dreamer's own mind, the possibilities of what can be done in the dream is limited only by their own imagination. I haven't yet been able to manipulate my dreams, but I have been able to realize that I'm dreaming. I found a video on collegehumor.com that pretends to come from the far distant future. If you wonder why the news we see on TV these days is so absurd, or seemingly so, maybe this little video clip will help. It pretends to be a review of the Beatles from, as I said, very far in the future. Oh, and improv everywhere. I love this group. Boing Boing has a video that leads to an episode in which the group recreates a Darth Vader sequence with Princess Leia on the 6 train in Manhattan. But everything by Improv Everywhere is worth watching. If you realize that you're on a subway train with a bunch of these people and you get off the train, you probably need to have your sense of humor adjusted. What happens when your firewall notifies you that it has blocked something? My general response to messages of this sort has been to consider quickly what application is asking for access. If the program is one that I just launched and the request seems reasonable, I often tell the firewall to simply allow the connection without investigating further. Sometimes I tell others to do the same thing, but that's not always the best advice. In fact, a case could be made that that is never the best advice. A much better recommendation comes from Andrew Warren at Synaptics. I asked him for permission to share it with you, so I will read his words. Firewall warnings should be read carefully and responded to even more carefully. You absolutely should not click Allow just because you recognize the blocked application as one you use. Connections between your computer and the Internet can be made in two ways. You can initiate the connection from your computer to the Internet by typing an address into your web browser, requesting an email from your ISP's mail server, signing on to an instant message service or such. Or someone else can initiate the connection from the Internet to your computer. The connections that you initiate are outgoing connections. They're required by nearly all programs that access the Internet. The others are incoming connections. They are required only by server applications, which you're unlikely to be running on your machine. Examples of programs that use outgoing connections, email clients such as Outlook, Eudora, or Pegasus. Web browsers, Internet Explorer, Firefox, and Opera, for example. Instant messaging clients, AIM, Yahoo Messenger, MSN Messenger, things like that. And online games. Examples of programs that use incoming connections would be web servers, FTP servers, and some remote desktop programs. The Windows firewall, at least through XP, always allows outgoing connections. Always. The logic is that if a malicious program is on your PC, it could disable any firewall rule that would otherwise prevent it from calling out anyway, so there's little point in trying. The only connections blocked by the Windows firewall are incoming connections that are required by only a few types of programs, none of which are likely to be running on your computer on a regular basis. So here's how you figure out what to do when your firewall warns that it's blocking an incoming connection and asks whether you want to allow it. First, if you don't know for sure, don't click Allow. If you find out later that you really should have allowed it, you can go to the firewall control panel and allow it from there. You can't fix things so easily, though, if you err in the other direction and allow your computer to be infected by a worm. Point two, consider what you were doing just before the warning appeared. 
If you are expecting an incoming connection, for example, you're on the phone with a Microsoft customer service rep who has just said he's going to access your desktop remotely to fix a problem, and if the firewall warning looks consistent with that, that is, Windows Firewall has blocked a remote desktop server from accepting connections, then it's probably safe to click Allow. If you've been quietly editing a Word document for two hours and suddenly see Windows Firewall has blocked file sharing services from accepting connections from the Internet, well, you better click block. Point three, pay attention to what's happening on your screen. If the firewall warning appears and the Internet program you were running freezes as though it's waiting for a connection, it might be okay to click allow. Since you're not sure, though, click block. If the program you're using then fails and displays an error message such as can't establish connection, check your firewall, then you should go to the firewall control panel and allow that program to accept incoming connections. If, on the other hand, your program continues to work as expected even after you click block, which is the way Skype would, for example, then leave it blocked. And fourth, you might want to do some research. You're not the only person running Windows. Whatever your problem is, somebody else has probably already experienced it, found an answer, and posted that answer somewhere. Google will have indexed the answer. So if you have a question about Skype, for example, and your firewall... You could type Skype, a space, then quotation marks, and Windows Firewall, and close the quotations. You'll quickly see that Skype does not need to accept incoming connections. It does this to allow Skype to use your computer as a super node to relay other people's conversations. If you don't want your PC to be used that way, then block the connection. And, depending on your version of Skype, also go into the settings and keep it from automatically adding itself to the firewall exception list. That's the advice from Andrew Warren. Besides being much better advice than what I generally offer with regards to firewall warnings, Andrew's comments point up yet another reason to be suspicious of Skype. I have written before about some of Skype's default settings. Consumer, beware. In Short Circuits, a little more than a decade ago, I read Dealers of Lightning. That's a book by Michael Hiltzik about the Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC. Now the center is 40 years old, and it hasn't been owned by Xerox since 2002. PARC invented the personal computer. PARC invented the laptop computer. PARC invented the laser printer, and HP licensed the technology. And PARC also invented much of the Internet. Now it's specializing in solar power and other future technologies. Xerox never managed to make much money on the inventions that flowed from Park, but if Xerox hadn't funded the operation, things would be a lot different today. Engineers at Park gave Xerox the know-how the company could have used to introduce a personal computer three years before IBM's PC. Park is responsible for the mouse, responsible by an indirect route for Ethernet, and largely responsible for the graphical user interface. Both Apple and Microsoft stole that idea from Park. It was the laser printer that made Park financially viable because of its licensing deal with HP. In the mid-1970s, when Park was a hotbed of activity, I hadn't heard of it, but I wrote a research paper for a class at Ohio State. I talked about computers in homes. My vision was of a desk-sized device, not a desktop computer, but a computer the size of a desk or maybe a refrigerator. Well, about that same time, at Park, in the 1970s, 
Alan Kay was trying to figure out how a computer might be placed in a container the size of a pizza box. That's right, a notebook computer. In those days, a cabinet with 64 kilobytes of memory weighed 10 pounds or more, cost thousands of dollars, and required a locker-sized cabinet for housing. I was looking just a few years into the future. Those guys at Park were looking perhaps to 1990, or maybe 2000. Charles Geschke and John Warnock left Park to become the co-founders of Adobe Systems. Gary Starkweather worked for Apple and then moved on to Microsoft after leaving Park. Alan Kay went to Atari from Park, then to Apple and to Disney, and is now the president of Viewpoint's Research Institute and an adjunct professor of computer science at UCLA. John Ellenby left Xerox to form Grid, one of the earliest makers of laptop computers. Then he pioneered wireless networking at Agilis Technology until he and his two sons started GeoVector. That's a company that develops technology for handheld devices. Park was truly a hotbed of research that advanced the science of computing. If you can find a copy of Dealers of Lightning in your library, probably has it. I think you'll find it a worthwhile read. What if you're planning to have a few friends over for your 15th birthday, but you accidentally make the Facebook invitation public? Very public. What happens is that instead of 15 RSVPs, you receive 21,000. Granted, most of the people won't really show up, but police in the teen's town have been notified and they will be watching in October. What happened next borders on the absurd. The girl who created the event listing on Facebook, instead of limiting the invitation to her 15 friends, accidentally made the event public. An accident. That immediately exposed her home address and telephone number to the world. So if you go, keep in mind the birthday party is off and police will be watching. And the girl won't be going near the Internet for a while either. Her mother told the London Telegraph that her daughter did not understand privacy settings and she has lost her Internet as a result of that. I've taken away her computer, the girl's mother said, so she won't make that mistake again. Hey, Mom, if your daughter doesn't understand something and makes a mistake, try using that as an opportunity to teach. All you're showing her by taking away her computer is that adults can be stupid and vindictive. According to Facebook, when somebody creates an event on Facebook, it clearly says anyone can view and RSVP, public event. If you leave this checked, then it is a public event, so anyone can view the content and respond. You know, Facebook has been criticized previously for overstepping the bounds of decency, and it seems that now would be a good time to repeat that criticism. So, hey, Facebook, do you think you owe this girl an apology? Why don't you make messages such as this private by default and allow users to create a world-viewable event only if they want to? Why? Would that just make too much sense? Or what? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.